on a lot of appliances, many normal, unassuming refrigerators and dishwashers. There is a secret code. Sometimes it's not even in the instruction manual. But if you can figure out the right series of unintuitive, unrelated buttons to press in a very particular order, the appliance will enter Sabbath mode. So you have to simultaneously press the up button for the refrigerator temperature and the down button for the freezer temperature. Which are some distance apart. Right. That's my friend Menachem and his mom and her refrigerator. Definitely done by two and, hands or two people. Press both of them simultaneously. And when they press those buttons, nothing appears to happen. Because Sabbath mode is about what doesn't happen. Now we open the fridge. And the light does not go the on. The light does not go on. And on, if you notice on the display, there are no lights either. So without getting too rabbinical about it, Sabbath mode is a way of accommodating what observant Jews can't do on Shabbat. Right. Shabbat starts at night on Friday Shabbat night. Shabbat starts Friday night at sunset, and it ends at the emergence of the stars when it's completely dark outside. So that's generally about 25 hours. And in those 25 hours each week, every Shabbat, observant Jews are supposed to absolutely rest and not do any kind of work at all or anything that would be considered work in the context of the Bible. Once electricity came into being, the rabbis determined that connecting the electrical link... The circuit. The circuit is the same as creating a fire. So why Sabbath mode exists is to make sure the refrigerator light doesn't turn on and the digital display is off. And for cooking, there's another workaround, although it is perhaps not as secret and cool. So we have a little bit of a problem here if we're going to eat hot food, but we can't cook on Shabbos. This takes us to the crock pot. The crock pot. You can plug it in before sundown on Friday, make a bunch of food in advance, and keep it warm all Shabbat. And the crock pot fulfills the, the needs of the Jewish person, of the observant Jewish person, by allowing the ingredients in it to cook for a day without, so, without burning or even longer. Which, side note, is so funny to me because I totally thought the crockpot was like the most goyish Midwestern device ever. But the crockpot is a vital device in Orthodox Jewish homes because it's the machine that makes the Shabbat food, which is called cholent. Keep this in mind. This is going to be important later. Cholent, which is a combination of beans and meat and potatoes. There's no one recipe for cholent, as long as it is a beany, meaty stew. The most important thing is that it is cooked in a crock pot for like 16 hours. It is eminently practical and humble. Not unlike the crock pot itself. Or at least, that is how I used to think about the crock pot. Now, the crock pot has become part of a bona fide chorus of slow, fast cookers and fast, slow cookers and multi-tool sous vide air fryers making very big promises about how they're going to cook you dinner and treat you right. All these kitchen top appliances are starting to blend together. You do get a lot of questions like, which one? Should I buy a slow cooker? Should I buy a pressure cooker? Professional kitchen equipment tester Sharon Frank says a lot of people can't tell these two particular appliances apart. Slow cookers and pressure cookers look almost the same now. So that is genuinely something that I hear all the time. People don't know the difference. Which one should I buy? I want to buy something to help me cook homemade meals. 
This new perfusion of kitchen appliances would lead you to think that there is no excuse not to be a good chef anymore. But specifically, the crock pot and the way it has been revamped and redesigned over and over again to fit America's changing attitudes about cooking has been an unlikely poster child for this logic that devices hold the key to making a meal that is both good and easy. And that's why there's a crockpot on display at the Smithsonian. Um, is it all right if I start recording? Sure, sure. From New York Magazine's Curb and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Nice Try. I'm Avery Truffleman. May I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. Paula Johnson. I'm a curator of food history at the National Museum of American History. Which is where we are right now. Which is where we are right now. Before you get to the crockpot that's on display at the American Food Exhibit at the Smithsonian, you actually have to walk by all the elements that led up to the crockpot's popularity. So when you first enter the exhibit, you pass a little room encased in glass. And when you peer inside, there is Julia Child's entire kitchen, moved intact from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Everything in here is Julia's, except uh, the floor is wallpaper we created uh, because we couldn't rip up her linoleum. And the most striking thing to me about the kitchen of the chef who arguably brought gourmet cooking to the masses in America is that smack in the center of her kitchen is a long dining table. Apparently, Julia always wanted her dinner guests to help her make the meal. She would put them to work shucking oysters or chopping carrots. Eating was just as much about the process of cooking. For Julia, it was this longer, slower process of life. You know, it wasn't just about getting something on the table. But almost exactly the same time that Julia Child was on TV in the 60s and 70s preaching the gospel of slow, careful cuisine, a whole suite of products were out there pushing the opposite message— that the modern busy woman doesn't want to be yoked to the kitchen for hours. She would like to be free to do other things. Whether it's the microwave, whether it's the TV dinner, and this is going to make everything so much better. And so this is like one philosophy. These are simultaneous parts of history that we have here, and they're very different. Slow food was pitted against fast food, Processed food versus elaborate processes. And so the crock pot fell exactly in the center of the Venn diagram. It's a kind of a bridge. It might be seen as a bridge between different worlds. This miraculous device was the answer. You could toss in your fresh, healthy ingredients in the morning, more or less forget about them, go about your day, and let them cook slowly without you, and have a fragrant stew waiting for you in the evening. The crock pot was a way to not work and still have a hot meal. It is, with very different branding, exactly why Menachem's mom and so many observant Jews use the crockpot to make cholent on Shabbat. And actually, a big part of why the crockpot exists is because of cholent and the limitations of Shabbat. About a year and a half ago, I get a phone call And it's a man in Brooklyn, and he's saying, my daughter has to do a report on an inventor. And I found you, it was your father, did your father invent the crackpot? And I said, yes, absolutely. Lenore Naxon's father, Irving Naxon, was based in Chicago. 
and he remembered stories his mother told him about preparing cholent in the shtetl she grew up in, in what is now Lithuania. And before every Shabbat, each family would bring a pot full of vegetables and meat to the town bakery. Yeah, full, full and cold, but full of fixins. And Lenore says her grandmother would just leave that crock in the bakery's oven. The bakery would be turning off their ovens. And, and uh, she would come back at the end of Shabbat on Saturday night. And lo and behold, everything was cooked because it had this slow, even residual heat. So he heard the story and he thought, hmm, how can I create something using this principle? The product Naxon created in 1936 was initially called the Naxon Beanery. So even though it was inspired by Shabbat and Cholent, Naxon intended to sell it for commercial use, for cooking beans, among other things. When Dad started selling them, they were initially sold for um, lunch counters. You know, it would be someplace where you're, you would order chili or the vegetable soup or the minestrone. The beanery was definitely utilitarian kitchen equipment. Like, you can imagine it in the back room of some diner somewhere. It is white, ceramic, and completely plain, except for this label that says Naxon in a typeface that looks like it was struck by lightning. But that's pretty much the only adornment on it. And you see there's no switch or anything. It's just you plug it in and it's on. Irving Naxon was a prolific inventor. He had over 200 patents. He was asked by the folks at F.A.O. Schwartz and Hamacher Schlemmer to make a doll clothes washing machine. So he really could have had no way of knowing that this beanery would be his legacy. And neither did rival manufacturing, the Kansas City-based company that bought Naxon's company in 1970. Rival Manufacturing used to be most well-known for introducing the electric can opener in the 1950s. And it also introduced popular products like the Knife-O-Mat Sharpener and the Juice-O-Mat Juicer and the Shred-O-Mat and the Steam-O-Mat and the Grind-O-Mat. And when Rival bought Naxon Utilities Corp., they were mostly excited about Naxon's other inventions, like his sun lamps and portable laundry equipment. They absolutely ignored the beanery. As the president of Rival told the Kansas City Times in a retrospective on the Crock-Pot, quote, no one paid any attention to it. We almost forgot about it. But when Rival remembered that they had bought this beanery thing, they assigned their home economist to figure out what they could do with it. And then they marketed the shit out of it. They christened it the Crock-Pot, and they revamped it to target women. Women who went to work and were still expected to have dinner on the table. I mean, the, the rival company figured out, you know, these wonderful taglines like, hey, this cooks while the cooks away. And they came with a little uh, brochure, which, yeah, we have right here. The Crock-Pot at the Smithsonian is extremely 1970s. It is avocado green with a gold border of cutesy, cartoonish illustrations of onions and tomatoes and fish and other ingredients. It's dainty and quaint as opposed to the industrial beanery. And it has just one dial in the center of it with three functions. High, low, off. Easy peasy. So here's how Rival positioned the crockpot right in between Julia Child and the frozen meal. Rival's clever edge was that they had a nutritionist invent crockpot-specific recipes. And they created a market for crockpot-specific cookbooks. And it's all about the different kinds of foods that you can make in your rival crock pot. 
you know, and it's, it runs the whole gamut from comfort foods, the kinds of, you know, uh, casserole sorts of things. But the book also contains recipes for French classics, you know, including Louis Bourguignon, mm. speaking of Julia Child. The revamped Crock-Pot was such a huge hit that stores could not keep it stocked. A friend of mine got married in, in 1977, and she said, well, you know, I got five Crock-Pots for my wedding. To me, this is the epitome of that period of time where, you know, young women at that time had jobs like that outside the home when their mothers did not. 1975 was the peak year for the Crock-Pot. Crock-Pot had become Rival's main product, more popular than its electric can opener. And so Rival attracted Rivals. Around 40 other competitors and off-brand slow cookers flooded the market in the 70s, and Rival basically lost ground. Also, Crock-Pots just went out of vogue a little bit. They started to be seen as these sort of fuddy-duddy casserole machines. When I had my first Crock-Pot, it was my grandma's old Crock-Pot that my mom had used and then passed down to me. It was white and had this, like, delicate blue uh, design on the rim of it. Ashley Fetters Malloy features reporter for The Washington Post. Ashley's grandmother's Crock-Pot was from 1980, and Ashley used it pretty regularly throughout her 20s. She could even make a cake in it. But when she finally wore it out, Ashley got a replacement. The new one that I got is, is not technically a Crock-Pot. It's a, it's a slow cooker made by Allclad. And it is this black ceramic bowl in a silver metal frame. Like, it looks very industrial. A lot of kitchen appliances from the aughts came out in chrome and steel. Very impressive, technical-looking equipment that shows what a serious, ambitious chef you are. And Ashley argues this massive redesign of kitchenware was about targeting a new market that was emerging in the mid-90s. This is when we start to see more men cook, more dads cook, more husbands cook, more single men cook. This was marketed to women, it was designed for women, and then really evolved to be marketed to and designed for men. When you say men, does that also mean, like, everybody? In some ways, yes. I, I think, you know, it, it, it does hew to that, like, old marketing rule of, you know, if it's for women, it's for women. If it's for men, it's for everybody. If it's men, it's gender neutral. And this change came for the Crock-Pot itself. Rival Manufacturing was purchased by Holmes Group in 1999, and the Crock-Pot was reintroduced clad in stainless steel with a bright red touchpad looking wholly like the Terminator. It was reborn as a high-tech, state-of-the-art, long-haul, heavy-duty cooking machine. And it arrived just as home cooks were looking to tackle more ambitious kitchen endeavors. Like feats in the kitchen. When something is like a big roast or like a rack of lamb that you spend all afternoon on, or in your crock pot, you could make your Super Bowl chili or your homemade queso. Like, gender aside, the crock pot was marketed as a way to make something that could be entertaining and showy. Now the crock pot wasn't only a method of stepping away. It was a way of stepping up. But why make your signature slow-cooked impressive dishes slowly? When you could make your impressive slow-cooked dishes quickly. The slow cooker had been gathering a lot of momentum, I would say, for the last 10 or even 15 years. It'd become very popular. But the Instant Pot was a phenomenon. Product tester Sharon Frank again. The Instant Pot came out in 2010. And the branding made it sound like some kind of magic. But it's old technology. So the Instant Pot is a pressure cooker. It's an electric pressure cooker. When you heat a pot that's under pressure, you raise the boiling point of the water and it cooks things much more quickly. 
Like steel cut oats might take five to 10 hours to slow cook on a stove or in a crock pot, but in a pressure cooker, it takes 36 minutes. They're obviously pressure cookers are another appliance that's been around for a long time, but there's a lot of fear associated with pressure cookers because there was a time when they didn't have safety devices and they exploded. I hope you like chicken and saffron rice served with chocolate sauce. Three minutes ago, I couldn't scramble eggs. Like the scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's when Holly Golightly tries to make her lover an exotic dish in a stovetop pressure cooker. Pressure cookers had, rightly so, a bit of a scary reputation. Oh, golly, darling, I did so want to impress you. That's very unlikely to happen anymore because there's so many safety pressures built into pressure cookers. So even though the Instant Pot has an increasingly large suite of other functions, including a slow cooker and a sauteer, essentially the Instant Pot is an electric pressure cooker. And it's interesting, like with both the crock pot and the Instant Pot, most of what they do is alleviate worry. Ultimately, the crock pot is just a safer alternative to keeping your stove on for hours. And similarly, once you don't have to worry about your pressure cooker exploding, it suddenly feels like a whole new product. Everybody wanted one. Everybody talked about it. People who didn't even know what it was or what it did. You know, and every other manufacturer was very quick to rush into the fray and to develop their own models. Including Crock-Pot, by the way. Out came a new version of the Crock-Pot with multiple settings and functions that include pressure cooking. And, in fact, in the Smithsonian Museum of American History, right on the shelf next to the 1970s avocado-colored Crock-Pot is a modern Instant Pot. And so if the crock pot was the big deal in the 1970s and 80s, you know, the Instant Pot is in the you know, 2010s. And, so we and this Instant Pot on display in particular used to belong to the New York Times food reporter, Melissa Clark. And when I called her about an Instant Pot, she said, well, which one would you like? Because it had never occurred to me, oh, yeah, of course, she'll have 12 or whatever. Well, I went to her house and it turns out she has just one. I've given them all away. At my peak, I had five. Can I introduce you to my Instant Pot? Of course. Okay, so this is it. This is just your basic model. Contrasted with the 1970s crock pot, which had one single dial, Melissa Clark's Instant Pot looks like a TI-89 graphing calculator. It's just gridded with all these weirdly specific buttons. Soup, broth, meat stew, bean chili, poultry, rice, multigrain, porridge, steam, yogurt, pressure. There's so many buttons. And I don't know if it's like intuitive. It's a little intimidating. Like, what do you think of the actual interface? Yeah, it's intimidating. I mean, personally, I think there are too many choices. I think all these (laughs) beans, stew, too many choices. I just actually want on and off and saute. But within those basic parameters, you can do a lot. Melissa Clark has written two cookbooks devoted entirely to the Instant Pot. People were a little surprised that I embraced the Instant Pot so wholeheartedly. I mean, I was surprised. I'm even surprised the Instant Pot is in the Smithsonian. I did not understand the frenzy around it when it started. Like, why did established chefs like Melissa hop on this Instant Pot trend? And why did my dilettante peers want this technologically advanced-looking thing with a thousand buttons when mostly what they wanted to do was just make rice in it? What was underneath all the hype? Like, psychologically, what was going on? After the break... How kitchen inventions change how we cook. Or maybe just change our attitudes around how we think we're supposed to cook. 
Attitudes about cooking in America have long vacillated back and forth and back and forth between the slow and the fast, between Julia Child and the microwave. Maybe you vacillate between the two schools of thought within your own kitchen in a given week. And devices like the Instant Pot, like the Crock Pot, have always attempted to be cheats, to get the healthiest, best results with the least possible effort. But no meal can ever actually be made in an instant. Case in point, a 2004 Wall Street Journal article said, quote, 80% of households owned a slow cooker in 2002, but only a fraction of owners used them, in part because buying fresh ingredients takes some planning. So much of making a meal, just generally, has less to do with equipment and more about the expectations around the equipment. And for a great example, let us consider the impact of the original time-saving kitchen appliance. The stove. The stove was a radical invention in its time. Like, wow, you didn't have to cook over a fire. You could suddenly have heat in an instant with the turn of a knob. And that instantly raised the standards of what people were supposed to be eating. The stove invented the multi-course meal for not rich people. Well, the middle of the 19th century, all of a sudden, an ordinary meal has to have a soup course and a meat and a potato and a dessert. That's more work for mother. (laughs) In her seminal book, More Work for Mother, historian Ruth Schwartz-Cowan writes that before the stove, you basically cooked in the fireplace. So everyone kind of ate from one pot. Ordinary people had stews. They had whatever could be thrown into one pot. Porridges and stews and tolent, for that matter. Because it could be done in one pot. Almost every culture has some version of gruel or lentils or stew or polenta. Just hearty, stick-to-the-ribs, simple one-pot meals that you can make in a kettle over an open flame. And before industrialization, it was still a ton of work to cook even this rudimentary meal. And while chores were strictly divided by gender, it was all hands on deck to make this dinner happen. So let's say you wanted to get uh, oats. You want to make oatmeal. How are you going to get the oats? Well, men grew grains. You needed kindling. Children collected the kindling. Kids provided some help and a husband really, really provided some help. Actually, the etymological roots of the word husband come from the Old Norse word for house, hus, because he was always there, fetching grains and meat from the fields, whittling and crafting all the utensils, all the spoons, all the spits, all the tools for cooking. According to Professor Cowan, the husband was organizing and planning and managing a lot, just bringing in all the materials and fuel and chopping up logs for the fire. Until the cash economy. When you start to buy cornmeal, and flour. Men don't have to do it anymore. The men's work began to disappear. And then suddenly it's her job to dash out into the world and back, to gather all the ingredients and utensils and plan for what they might have for dinner. And although the hearth was replaced by the amazing labor-saving device, the stove, whose labor was that saving? Gathering the fuel was never her job. Her duties have not changed. They have, in fact, multiplied. Especially because now, with the stove, she's also expected to know how to saute and bake. All of a sudden, you have a cake, for example, or 
even pie as a part of the regular dinner meal. You have more cooking spaces, and so you were expected to do more cooking. As Ruth Schwartz Cowan writes in More Work for Mother, with the invention of the egg beater comes the angel food cake. The bar keeps getting raised with every new appliance, every new reason to be making better, more elaborate meals entirely on your own, and somehow saving more time that you're supposed to fill with more multitasking. I love to make red lentil soup, so I will put the red lentil soup in the pot, and it takes about half an hour, which is exactly as long as I go for my run. Melissa Clark could also make red lentil soup in a crock pot and then go for a much longer or slower run. And in fact, some of her Instant Pot recipes, like for homemade ricotta and for braised pork and for butternut squash soup, have options for how to make the same thing longer and slower on the stove. But that's not the point. So the idea that you can go do something else while your food cooks is actually really ancient. But the way it works for our modern society is that we aren't doing something to be slow and deliberate about it. We are doing something because in order to make our lives work, we need to do more than one thing at the same time. Although the way Melissa Clark likes to use her Instant Pot is not exactly cooking while the cook's away. Her Instant Pot recipes include coconut chicken curry, shakshuka with herbed yogurt sauce, or dolce de leche— These recipes that might require just a few more steps, a degree of prep, or a sauce, or a garnish. There's a certain mindset about crockpots and instant pots where you just, you don't sear, you don't do any advanced preparation, you throw everything in, close the lid. This is like a very important um, way that a lot of people use their machines. I don't use it like that. It's a different philosophy. Um, I think part of what some people didn't like about my instant pot cookbook was it wasn't as easy as that. Because the Instant Pot saves time, but not necessarily labor. It's not quite as easy a solution as people might think it is when they first buy it. Again, product tester Sharon Frank. You can have chicken soup after a day's work, but it could take, you know, five, ten minutes for the pressure cooker to come up to pressure. And then it still takes more or less a half an hour to cook, depending on what the food is. It's still not picking up a roast chicken on the way home from work and mixing a bag salad in a bowl. Especially if you're expected to gather more exotic ingredients for more elaborate recipes and do more prep around the Instant Pot. And all of this I totally understand, but I'm still like, how did I get too busy to cook for myself? Like, what the hell do I do all day? I think it means that we are continuing this thread of of seeing what how much more we can pack into a certain day. I grapple with this idea a lot. Chef and author Chandra Ram. And it just means that we all have an extra 35 minutes to deal with our email, right? And then somehow that's just going to become work time. Chandra used to not be a device person. She is not about saving labor. She's a chef. She is on Team Julia Child. Like, I I never even had a rice cooker because I was used to cooking rice, you know, the sort of the pilaf method that we learned in school. But Chandra warmed up to the Instant Pot when she realized what it could mean for making Indian food. Pressure cooking is the go-to for a lot of of classical, traditional Indian cooking. And it's simply because 
A lot of people were traditionally working off of stoves that were fueled by propane, they were fueled by petroleum. And with pressure cooking, you're able to cook the food much faster. And so you're using less fuel. Chandra had always been haunted by the stories of exploding pressure cookers. But the Instant Pot let her feel safe enough to attempt some of this stuff. Actually, because of Indian cuisine's connection with pressure cooking, Indian Instant Pot books are enormously popular. According to Melissa Clark, at one point, there were more cookbooks for making Indian food with an electric pressure cooker than any other cuisine. Chandra Ram wrote one herself called The Complete Indian Instant Pot Cookbook, even though you can make a lot of her recipes in any generic pressure cooker. It becomes part of cookbook marketing where people are looking for Instant Pot recipes. So you have to pay Instant Pot to make sure that you can say this is an Instant Pot cookbook. Not unlike Crock-Pot's marketing, cookbooks are a big aspect of the Instant Pot. And one reason an author might license out the Instant Pot name is to try to capitalize on the Amazon algorithm. Because Amazon is arguably the bedrock of the Instant Pot trend. According to a 2017 New York Times profile of Instant Pot founder Robert Wang, at one point, 90% of Instant Pot sales were through Amazon. Early on, Instant Pot joined the Fulfillment by Amazon program and eventually started sending Amazon wholesale shipments of Instant Pots right from their factories in China. To this day, the Instant Pot is a fixture on the Amazon bestseller list, leading to more sales and more rave reviews, perhaps from people who are being introduced to a pressure cooker for the first time. I noticed a sort of Twitter, Instagram, social media thing, but actually mostly on Facebook. People were going crazy for their Instant Pots. They talked about their Instant Pots like, like it was their lover. It's not that any of the rave reviews are unwarranted. It's just that the frenzy and the craze was stoked and cultivated. It always has been. Ever since the Naxon Beanery became the crock pot, when you strip them down to their basic functions, it's all old technology, old methods of cooking, with new makeovers and new marketing. But maybe we needed these appliances to look different and novel. Maybe the chrome-clad crockpots or button-laden pressure cookers represent a kind of permission to regress a bit. Kind of like how my phone can perform incredible technological feats, but the way I use it is mostly an updated version of the telegram. I think the Instant Pot is ultimately a highly advanced excuse to make one-pot meals. Like the ones we lived on before the invention of the stove to make traditional soups and stews and the dishes that taste warm and familiar, but in a new way. I had some huge anxiety after I signed the contract to write this book because my lovely and very well-meaning and wonderful editor said, okay, well, we want this to be the go-to book for authentic Indian cooking. And I was just like, wow, how do I tell you you signed the wrong person? Chandra grew up in Kentucky with an Irish mother and an Indian father. They didn't cook Indian food at home, and she didn't focus on it in culinary school. Chandra's experience with authentic Indian cuisine mostly came from trips to visit her grandparents, where it seemed like everything, the air and the climate, was all a part of cooking. My grandparents' house in India is, uh, you know, is kind of an open air 
um, home. And it's in Vizag, which is along the southeastern coast. So it's very humid and warm there much of the year. And I live in a hermetically sealed apartment in Chicago. So you like I I I would have to fake the atmosphere and the environment. Chandra's instant pot allowed her to unhook herself from the entire concept of authenticity. To stop chasing what she thought she should be making or what authentic food should taste like. When you're using a piece of equipment that your your grandmother never even imagined could exist, you're kind of throwing a lot of the rules out the window anyways. And so for me, I say, yes, this food is incredibly authentic. If you are half Indian, half Irish, and grew up in Kentucky (laughs) and really love the food from Goa and Kerala, even though that's not where your family is from. I mean, has this been a slippery slope? Has this been your gateway drug into more gadgets, the Instant Pot? I I did buy a toaster oven that had an air fryer component, and <laughs> I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with that choice. The electric slow cooker and the electric pressure cooker really are ideal entries into the world of kitchen gadgets. Because underneath all the pizzazz, behind the branded names, They're only lightly gadgety. As Melissa Clark says, they are different routes back to something eternal. That's why it works. It's capturing something age-old that's built into us. I really feel like this kind of cooking is just built into us as humans, you know? Wait, when you say this kind of cooking, what does that mean? I mean long, slow, hands-off cooking. And for that reason, I weirdly found myself wondering about Cholent. I didn't grow up eating it because my family doesn't observe Shabbat like Menachem's family does. But Cholent is the stewy one-pot meal of my people. And while I don't have a crockpot or the desire to spend 16 hours making it, I was curious about what Cholent tastes like. Have you ever have you ever made Cholent? Yes, of course. Have you ever made it in an Instant Pot? No, but it's perfect for an Instant Pot because Cholent is, yeah, of course, because Cholent is, the idea of Cholent is long, slow, wet cooking, right? Melissa found a vegetarian Cholent recipe and broke it down for me. Okay, so potatoes and beans and barley. Oh, this looks delicious. And instead of cooking it for 16 hours, (laughs) I would, I would do it for three hours. Okay. So it's still so long to me, but better than 16. Better than 16. Okay. The broth, please. The broth is right there. So Menachem and I threw some potatoes, beans, barley, and vegetable stock into his instant pot. And we added our own little twist by throwing in some fake meat. Whoa. We're impatient, so we put it in the instant pot for just one hour, but it totally did the trick. I gotta tell you something. It looks like chillin'. On a cold, rainy night in Brooklyn, the vegan cholent was cozy and comforting and simultaneously new and sort of thrilling. I felt like we'd pulled something off, that we'd updated this obligatory kosher mush into something exciting and genuinely delicious. This is pretty good. Yeah? Like, I would make this. Menachem told me he ate the leftovers for two days afterwards. And it wasn't even Shabbat. Next time on Nice Try, 
So far in our season, we've talked about products that were supposed to make American life easier and more convenient. But maybe life was getting too easy. Like the soft American, which was JFK's slogan, which he piloted in, in uh, Sports Illustrated. He talks about Americans who are intellectually and physically flabby, and we've got to redress that. Perhaps it was time for a product intentionally crafted to be cumbersome. The weight. How iron became a part of the American home fitness routine. And the rise of a somewhat utopian experiment in the heart of Amish country, once known as Muscletown, USA. Nice Try is a collective effort from Megan Kinane, our senior producer, Diana Buds and Sarah Burke, our associate producers, Fact-checking by Selena Solon. Lisa Pollock is our editorial consultant. Alex Higgins sound designed and engineered this episode. Our theme song is by Greg Pliska, with additional scoring by Greg, Alex, and me. Special thanks to Curbed Editor Sukjong Hong. And very special thanks as well to Menachem Kaiser and Judy Kaiser. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kerwa and Kelsey Keith. This episode was written and performed by me, Avery Truffleman. Nice Try is a product of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Find us wherever you listen.